Well, I'm thrilled to be joined today by two leaders of the University of Alabama at Birmingham um, School of Medicine to get a sense as to what's happening both in the city of Birmingham, but more broadly in the state of Alabama. Anupam Agrawal is the chief of the Division of Nephrology and also the ASM president. And Jeannie Murata is the chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases, and she's also a member of the board of directors of the Infectious Diseases Society of America. So Jeannie Anupam, thank you for joining us for today's discussion. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me, Todd. So Jeannie, I thought I would start with you. I'm curious in, in terms of your role at UAB, what were the first steps you took as it became clear that we were gonna that we both were in the middle of a, a COVID nineteen pandemic, but also that this was such a crisis situation? Yeah, Todd, it's um it's a great question. In some ways, it's been such a blur. It's almost hard to put a chronology on it. Um, you know, I think that those of us who lived through the SARS uh, scare and then knew that MERS, uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, was still smoldering in the background for several years now with a very high mortality rate. People don't appreciate that it's 30% still. Um, you know, when, when we heard about this in Wuhan, which was really early January, um, I think everybody was a little bit nervous. And I was actually at a meeting at NIH um, of the newly funded vaccine treatment and evaluation units in January. And Dr. Fauci did a kind of a welcome and he was talking about it and he used the term, you know, uh, we don't know what's going to happen, but he said, but this is scary business. And I, you know, I, and I think anybody who understands these viruses out of particularly China with this background of uh, mammalian source that then jumps to humans, you know, had to be anxious from the beginning. And so I would say in February, um, you know, we here started doing some local media as soon as there was a hint that there might be cases exported outside of China. And you may, you know, remember that happened quite early, as soon as, as soon as Seattle. So I think, interestingly enough, the first steps that we did were not so much scientific as communication um, and trying to lay the groundwork for uh, for people to understand that they needed to pay attention to what was coming down the pike. The second thing we did was to try to raise the um, alert level for the hospital system um, and the school, because I would say many people were not perceiving this, and this is no fault of their own at all. It's just not the world we live in. You know, in ID, we've been living with this sort of like pandemic We've actually been preparing pandemic plans for influenza now for, for several years. Um, it's just not the world that they live in. And so we tried, I, I would say, pretty early to really mobilize the attention of our dean and our senior leadership and our hospital leadership to say, you know, we need to be ready to um, mobilize the emergency response team, the infectious disease emergency response team. Let's think about the flow of our patients through the ERs. And let's think about what the infection prevention implications are. We never, I have to say, I don't think anybody originally thought we would ever get to the point where we would be closing the hospital um, and having no widespread quarantine. But so the early, the early things were more about communication and real sort of like, hey, this is not a drill uh, preparedness at the hospital level. So Nupam, I'm curious, how did you first get involved in this conversation? So. Um, we were hearing um, about this disease outbreak in China. One of my research technicians actually 
uh, went back to China for Chinese New Year and um, got a call from her as soon as she landed there, actually sent us an email that there is this outbreak and I'm not sure if I'll be able to return in time. Um, and her husband lives in Birmingham. So we were very worried and you know looked up what this was happening. This was January 21st uh, when this was really peaking in, in Wuhan. She's not from Wuhan, but from another region close to Beijing. Uh, and she's still stuck there in China. And now she has a date of May 22nd for a return, uh, if everything goes well. So, uh, so that was the first I learned. And then uh, Dean um, asked uh, Jeannie to serve on a task force for our UA system uh, to start beginning planning that in case this, you know, became really big in the United States, we needed to plan given the, uh, you know, huge vulnerable population we have in the southeastern United States and Alabama in particular with the high incidence of obesity, kidney disease, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease that we needed to be prepared if this way to, uh, you know, come. Uh, so I was part of the task force and we still meet, uh, uh, you know, regularly. Uh, Jeannie co-chairs that task force. So that's how I got, you know, involved and um, heard about it in the first, in late January. So Jeannie, Anupa mentioned the task force and it's across the University of Alabama. I'm just curious as to, what you're seeing in terms of the urban centers versus the, the rural parts of the state. You know, we've heard a lot mm -hmm. at the national media level about the, the urban centers, New York City, New Orleans, et cetera, but we haven't heard as much about kind of rural America and what's happening there with, mm -hmm. with the virus. Yeah. So one of the things that's so interesting about this process is people are learning about the um, sort of extent of powers that public health and local jurisdictions have relative to the state. And that's, I think, going to turn out to be a whole interesting area to investigate when we look back and see who instituted what and who, how people fared in their efforts to flatten the curve. So, for example, um, early on, the University of Alabama System Task Force that Anupam alluded to that I chaired with the system council and uh, head of, of um, risk and compliance for the system, we were um, thinking about it not just from the standpoint of Birmingham and the campus here in Birmingham, which is the medical campus and also the undergraduate campus at UAB, but also in Tuscaloosa, uh, because of course the, the main University of Alabama undergrad campus and, and, and many other programs are there, as is the, the, the very large sports program. Um, so we were sort of faced with discussing a situation that I, I hadn't really experienced before, which is that we had a very involved um, uh, health department in Birmingham um, that we were in regular contact with. Um, and who worked really closely with us um, at UAB. And um, that health department in concert with the mayor can actually exert significant public restrictions on things that turned out to be physical and social distancing and, and some of the measures that have been in place since then. However, we were also talking with the mayor of Tuscaloosa, who despite his best intentions and really um, actually very, very sophisticated understanding of of the epidemic and, and what was coming down the road, didn't have any uh, power to exert this kind of health-related order. So this is where we realized that 
that it, it, it wasn't just important to, you know, talk about the school system and the, um, the related physical jurisdictions, but we also needed to have a voice and a presence at the level of the governor. And the governor, to her credit, convened a task force um, very early on, actually, that included me as well as um, the Mark Wilson, who is the public health officer for Jefferson County, and it was run by our state health officer. So it was very helpful because we were able to bring our perspective coming from this place, which was pretty much moving early on. I mean, I think well, we can talk about where we're at, but and I don't want to jinx us, but right now we are well below the curve. We have really been blessed so far with our, our numbers of, of cases at UAB Hospital. We're seeing on average about maybe two to three new patients a day, which is a trickle compared to what we feared and well within our ability to manage it. And, you know, we think it was because we, we did uh, very early institute some pretty aggressive measures. Other parts of Alabama uh, did not. And you could hear on the governor's task force that there was a wide diversity of opinion, not surprising. We've seen it play out in many states where some people were completely uninterested in doing that. And if you look at what's happening now in Alabama, you've got a natural experiment um, that you could go back and chart um, the progress of the epidemic with reference to when things were instituted and how well they they were adhered to. So so it was, it was fascinating because um, the... The local control over what you can do is is not widely known, but turns out to be a criti critically important um, um, lever in in how things evolve. So I'm struck just listening as you as you tell that story that, that I would you had mentioned earlier that you had developed a pandemic plan. What seemed to have happened here was that it was very much from the local level to the state, and ultimately from the state, or ideally from the state to the federal. I would assume that your pandemic plan is the opposite, that you're thinking more from the sort of federal to the state to the local. Is, is that a correct assumption? No, I think every state had their own pandemic plans for influenza. So this is not something I personally did, but working with a lot of people in public health and knowing the infectious disease folks who, you know, who ran the public health departments uh, when I was in Washington state in particular before I came here, um, the pandemic flu plans were very guided by the CDC. So, you know, and, and this is something that we, we may want to get into because CDC's um, virtual absence, I think, from from the discussions here is, is something, something that many people have really struggled with because um, they have, CDC has always been the leader in thinking about coordinating state level um, and some local health jurisdictions have kind of state level um, um, designation like New York City, Seattle King County, Atlanta, they, they are almost treated like their own little fiefdoms apart from the state. Um, so, so CDC, um, was always very, very involved in helping states develop their own pandemic plans. And the plans were pretty specific. They, they certainly reflected the best federal guidance because that's what you wanted them to do. But they were also very specific about who was going to do what in terms of the command center or the command structure, because it's all about, you know, an emergency and who who's in charge of ensuring that the schools are handled, who's in charge of ensuring that the stockpile has whatever vaccines you're hopefully going to get in there or whatever drugs you think you might be able to get to control things. So 
that all of those kind of eventualities were thought about very carefully. Um, what what wasn't so, so I, I would say it, it was very much a public health thing and kind of, you know, academics was kind of involved, but not not really. I mean, this was always really about how the information and the supplies and the directives and the guidance would flow from the feds to state and local health departments and then radiate out from there uh, to the community. Um, and, and that includes the academic community. Um, you know, what you, what you ended up having here is a little bit of a double jeopardy, if not triple jeopardy, because the, the plans that we had were, were for flu, which are kind of relevant, but not totally because this was a completely different virus. Um, there's, there, we're, we're light years behind in terms of the vaccine compared to where we might be with flu and certainly even with looking at antivirals. So that that was one challenge. The and we, nobody had a plan for things shutting down like this for two months. I mean that that just the economic devastation piece. I don't think anybody foresaw that, or the closure of healthcare systems. You know for routine care, and then the second double jeopardy part is that you don't have guidance from the CDC. So normally in a situation like this, I'm just thinking back to you know big outbreaks we have had when we had the bad flu year several years ago. Um, we've had a couple of them, but there, there have been a couple of really ringer ones. Um, you know, you, you would get guidance from CDC pretty regularly. CDC would have calls where clinicians could get on. You could learn the latest. There would be, um, lots of updates. And, and we just really haven't seen this, um, during this pandemic. So that's part of the reason that the local responses have been so diverse, so lame in some places. And cause, cause health departments, are, are are not well resourced in some places and also so incredibly strong in some others that have great health departments. I, I often say thank thank goodness that Seattle was the first place to experience this outbreak because in terms of having a um an infrastructure where you have a really strong marriage of public health, um, academics and industry, especially laboratories, science-based industry, and information technology, you could not have had a better place to have this happen because, um, and that's the only reason they were able to get it under control so early and not experience what New York ultimately experienced. Nupam, I know one of the issues that you've been dealing with is, as we think about the variability across states, is how individual states um, consider patients and patient populations and, and what I'll call a sort of rationing of care, or at least prioritizing care. I'm curious to see your experience around um, the ability in Alabama for people with kidney failure to have access to ventilators. So thank you, Todd, for that question. So we were alerted um, a few weeks ago uh, about a old um, state of Alabama guideline from 2010 that multiple conditions underlying would exclude you from getting a ventilator if there was a shortage, and that included kidney failure, both acute and chronic, if you were on dialysis, you would be excluded. Um, one of my faculty members brought it to my attention. So we, I brought it to Jeannie's attention right away and she took it up with the you know, task force uh, for the state. Uh, and they said they would really default to our UAB's uh, uh, guidelines that was actually being developed. And in that guideline, because of you know Jeannie's efforts, 
they ended up removing any of those chronic conditions that would exclude you from requiring you know, ventilators. There was a JAMA paper on this topic as well. And then with the efforts of the ASN and the National Kidney Foundation, writing a letter to the National Governors Association, as well as the uh, uh, Office of Civil Rights, that resulted in a letter from the Office of Civil Rights to at least two states, you know, Pennsylvania and Alabama, and they took those uh, uh, guidelines out and have updated them. So that is no longer an issue. Uh, but clearly, this is a very state-specific issue. So, uh, you know, it's ethically wrong to have uh, patients being denied a ventilator just because they have, uh, you know, a chronic condition. Uh, for example, if they need dialysis or, uh, you know, uh, for acute or chronic kidney disease. So. Um, it, it took, uh, um, you know, I, I think uh, the community also was quite vocal. I was contacted by a practice in town that they were, um, you know, getting a letter signed by all the nephrologists in Alabama to the Alabama Department of Public Health, uh, you know, protesting against that, those guidelines that were outdated from 2010. Uh, so I think uh, clearly uh, that's the place where I could see societies like Infectious Disease Society or ASN, you know, could really play a key role in shaping, uh, you know, policy and guidelines that may have been wrong and for whatever purpose, but they need to be revised and updated. And I think that was, you know, a great example of uh, how we were able to accomplish that. So, Jeannie, I won't hold you to this, but I'm curious if you were to predict the course of COVID-19 over the next, say, three months, then six months, nine. 12, 18, somewhere in there. What's your best guess? Yeah, that's the, the trillion dollar question. Um, you know, my, my best guess is it, there's so many variables, um, but let's just say that things continue as they are. So if you look at the Northeast and the urban centers there, you're probably seeing the plateau, the deaths are coming down. Um, the deaths are generally about two weeks behind the peak number of cases. So, um, you know, I think that in areas where there was a sort of a saturation with an appropriate social physical distancing response, you're going to see this waning down in areas that um, have outbreaks that have not been so well controlled. And we're seeing this certainly nursing homes. Um, we're seeing it in meat and poultry processing plants. Uh, Northern Alabama is having an issue right now, poultry processing. The Midwest, Nebraska, really bad, Kansas, bad meatpacking um, sort of plant activities. So where, you know, if you don't sort of see those kinds of um, outbreaks spread and the rest of us, like Alabama, for example, continues to do some degree of social physical distancing, which we just heard today they will, which is, is pretty remarkable. And we can come back to that if you like. You know, it's going to, I think, be a series of uh, variable epidemics that are going to be very much dependent on the balance between what their disease burden is to start with and what they've been able to do to mitigate the spread. So in Alabama, if we continue, if we can get Mobile under control and we can get a couple of our other communities on the eastern border under control, meaning that, you know, we hit a plateau and uh, we, we aren't going any farther. 
I think we'll probably reach some sort of steady state. And if we continue to do social distancing, we could probably continue to drive down the are not less than one. And that's really what we want to do. So remember, are not is the reproductive rate of any infection. If it's less than one, it means if it's one, it means on average, every person who's infected infects one other person. If it's three, it means you infect three people. If it's like measles, it's like 14 people because measles is so incredibly infectious. So we've had a lot of discussion about what we think are not is for this virus. And it obviously depends on you know, what stage of the illness you're in and how intensively you're shedding. But on average, people think it's probably between 2.5, around, around 2.5 to 3. So if we could get to a place in either isolated pockets or in larger parts of communities where there is not such population density, you might be able to get to that. And I think if you do, so, so that, that gets to this issue of it, it's a complex interplay between population density and inter, inter, in, and the ability of people or likelihood that people are going to come into contact versus what the underlying rate of infection is in that community. So think of an apartment building in New York it, or, or a community gym in New York or something like that. It doesn't take very many infected people in a setting where you're sitting, you know, six inches away from somebody or a subway car for those infections to really continue to propagate. If you're talking about a rural community in the middle of Georgia or Alabama, that's gonna be very different. You can have a handful of infections and they're probably gonna die out. So there's there's kind of two variables there. It's not just the infectiousness of the virus as a particle, but it's really this, this um, dynamic of human interactions. And that's so related to how we assemble. Um, in public places and, and in our in our in our uh, work settings, so so my best guess is that it, it, we will continue to see sort of this simmering low level, um, and 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 you know everybody's going to get to some sort of steady state, whether it's a, a not, not a great steady state or whether it's going to be a, a, an acceptable steady state, which is kind of where we are here right now, and then almost certainly there are going to be these eruptions of of outbreaks and the the eruptions are going to come because um, people are really ignoring the practices that we're trying to get them to do um, as we reopen society right so you know you're going to try to reopen society gradually as we're doing now here but you still want people to exercise um, personal hygiene measures you would like them to do some degree of physical distancing and in Birmingham as of May 1st we have to wear masks in public which is uh, very interesting and very un Alabama uh, so so if you can do that then I think you can kind of keep it at a low enough level that that you can then detect those blips right that are I'm sure going to occur in I, I really worry about long-term care facilities. I worry about correctional facilities, like everybody really does. Um, and then once you see those blips, then ideally, if your background rate is low enough and you're prepared, you've got the resources to go in there and do contact tracing. You get the infected people cohorted and you can isolate in a small enough group that you can actually make a difference. So that would be my best case scenario. I think the the degree to which and the pace at which people and individual communities get to that point depends exactly on where they are right now. So do I think that rural Mississippi, um, rural Arkansas are gonna be there in two months? I worry about that a lot. 
Um, I don't even know if Mobile will be there. Um, I think Birmingham could be there, um, depending on, on how things go. So, sorry, complicated answer, um, but there is no one right answer. And I think it's going to be, and that's kind of why these models that have been state specific have made us crazy a little bit. And Anupam can comment on this. I mean, there was a period there where the uh, Seattle IHME model was out saying that we were going to need like a billion ventilators in Alabama and the media was going nuts and we were getting calls and please tell us what, what are you going to do? Are we all going to die? And, um, you know, it's, you, you can't model a whole state when you've got the complexities that we're dealing with here. And, and I think that's true pretty much for everywhere. So, so hence, sorry, long answer, but, um, but I think it's, um, it's really important to think through all those details. Yeah, to take up on that point, Todd, you know, Atul Gavande tweeted out, what the hell is happening in Alabama? And um, put out the projections from IHME, but they've yes. completely not taken into fact that we had already started social distancing. We had stayed, and actually the next day, April 3rd, our governor announced stay at home, and they had to revise their projections, and clearly, you know, that was completely a different story. So, yeah. So, so I have to ask selfishly since you mentioned it. So, I um, when we do go back into the office, um, I take the subway every day, um, about 20 minutes on the train in and 20 minutes home. How do I protect myself? Yeah, I I think a couple of things. Um, um, I think that masks are going to be really important in those situations, and you could ask what kind of mask in the subway i would wear the best mask i could get um you know we've been saying that when people wear masks to go to the grocery store they're generally wearing them to protect other people from their own um body so what whatever you're breathing whatever you're coughing you're wearing a mask so it doesn't get out into the air around you the subway is a little bit of a different story, right? Because you don't really have the luxury of making sure everybody else has a mask on, although they should. And personally, if I had an N95, that's probably where I would wear it. Um, should everybody on the subway be wearing an N95? No, because we want to make sure that healthcare workers have access to them in the hospital. And we've been very clear about that, that people in general should not be walking around wearing N95 masks. But, you know, the subway... In, in a city that's had a substantial outbreak, to me, is different than walking into the gross, the Piggly Wiggly in Birmingham, Alabama. Very different. Um, you know, going to the Piggly Wiggly, which is our grocery store, I, I would be perfectly comfortable wearing a bandana mask or a cotton mask. I, I would usually like to wear a blue cone mask or a surgical mask, but I, I think that's probably overkill. So, so I would be very attentive to that. I would have hand sanitizer. I would definitely, you know, if you touch surfaces, then make sure you're really crazy um, obsessive about washing your hands and not touching your face. And I think you'll be okay. I mean, the the reassuring um, component of that for you to help you sleep better at night is that since masks have been instituted at um, healthcare facilities, UAB, Seattle system, the whole the, heart, the whole Seattle system. This is really interesting. They have heart. They have had, and we have had no healthcare employee infections. So I think that that the the masks really really work, and if you're really attentive to hand hygiene, I think you're 95 percent there. I'll also add Todd, that initially during the pandemic at East Our Institution, we had several of our healthcare workers getting positive, 
just because they were getting exposed to, you know, asymptomatic individuals. And a lot of these were in the community. But as soon as we went to universal masking in our whole hospital, I think in, for a few weeks now, we've not had a single healthcare worker test positive. Well, I, I apologize for going long, but I'd, I'd like to ask you each the same question just to close. And, and Anupam, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, in your role as ASM president, I'm just curious as to what you've been most proud of that ASM has done to try to help during this crisis. I think uh, several things. Um, ASN uh, Policy and Advocacy Committee, the Quality Committee, and several others have worked really hard in uh, making really sweeping changes, uh, you know, that have occurred very quickly through CMS, uh, particularly with the telehealth coverage for our dialysis mm -hmm. patients, uh, you know, over half a million uh, in the U.S. Uh, we have to see them four times a month to, you know, bill for their monthly capitated payments, but now we can do that by telephone or televideo visits, which is a huge, uh, you know, for us to not abandon our patients, but be able to continue providing care uh, and making sure they get, you know, the best possible dialysis. I think that was huge effort by um, our society in terms of working with CMS and, and moving that forward. So I think that telemedicine coverage is probably, uh, you know, uh, number one on my list. And Jeannie, in your role as a leader with the Infectious Diseases Society of America, I'm curious as to what you've been most proud of that IDSA has done during this crisis. Uh, I think a couple of things, but the the biggest one is probably their um, uh, getting together and issuing uh, treatment guidelines uh, about two weeks ago now. And there's a political background to it because um, there, since that time, there has been um, also guidelines issue, issued from HHS, from NIH, which is great. Um, but the discussion of who was going to come out and say that we have no effective therapy for this infection, we have no evidence that certain drugs that have been overtly politicized uh, work and, in fact, can be harmful, which everybody is comfortable saying right now. That actually was a pretty hot potato um, for um, for a while, unfortunately. And um, in fact, it may have, you know, I don't know this, but I, I would not be surprised if it contributed to a delay in um, the guidelines getting out from the NIH. But regardless, you know, IDSA um, sort of stepped up to the plate and said, you know, there's no way that we're not going to. Um, address the needs of not just our society members, but clinicians at large, um, and say that, you know, and put out guidance that we have, that we're, we were really can stand behind, um, and that we think is, um, is scientifically credible and will evolve importantly over time because, of course, um, the data is never, um, never sitting still. So, so I think that was a really important um, message and it's a message that I think we still need to continue to hammer home because we're still hearing uh, there's a, there's just a lot of misinformation out there about how to uh, treat this infection and as you know when you have something that is killing people and you feel like you're standing by and you're not doing anything it's hard to even discuss with people why you're doing randomized controlled trials um, uh, because they just don't necessarily want to participate in those. So I think the fact that 
people were willing to take stand um, and put themselves out there in the face of what had become a lot of unfortunate discussion was really was very, very good. And, and I think we'll continue. Well, Jeannie Newcomb, thank you very much for taking the time to talk, but also everything you're doing at a, a local level, at a state level, and a national level um, during this, this pandemic. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the American Society of Nephrology.